The next chapter with Prim Sarukapat is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week's guest is former D1 University of Tennessee and WNBA player Shamiqua Holdsclaw. Shamiqua is a New Yorker. She grew up in Queens and basketball has been a part of her life ever since she was a little kid. In high school, she led her team to four straight New York State championships. After that, she went on to play for the late Pat Summit and the University of Tennessee, where they would go on to win three straight NCAA titles and also clinch Tennessee's first ever undefeated season in 1998, where they went 39-0. and 0. Shamiqua finished her career with 3,025 points and 1,295 rebounds, making her the all-time leading scorer and rebounder at Tennessee and also in SEC women's history. Now, coming out of college, there was obviously a lot of hype about Shamiqua. In fact, she was dubbed the next female Michael Jordan. And she ended up being selected with the number one overall pick by the Washington Mystics in the 1999 WNBA draft. Now, during her professional career, she played for four different teams, became a six-time WNBA All-Star, and was a league's scoring champion in 2002. She's got quite the athletic resume, right? And during our conversation, which was recorded in 2019, we uncover all the other aspects of her journey that really haven't been talked about, including what it's like to not only be an athlete, but a woman of color, a black female navigating the athletic arena. We also talk about what it was like to grow up with two parents who were alcoholics and how her traumatic childhood contributed to an even greater reliance on sport because it was like this distraction from her reality and also how her traumatic past ended up contributing to a lot of her mental health issues, including her bipolar disorder and suicide attempt. Her story is a great reminder that so many athletes, including a few I've interviewed this season, have had a difficult upbringing and oftentimes come from broken homes. And because of that, we shouldn't be disillusioned to think that these Big, strong athletes are immune to psychological distress because internally, as Shamiqua explains, they're fragile and human, just like the rest of us. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, here's Shamiqua Holdsclaw as her and I finally get to connect and meet one another in the flesh. Gabby Reese and I I just sat Mm -hmm. down with her yesterday and she said something really smart she said 
for an idea to really take off and launch, it mm-hmm. takes five years. Every idea takes five mm-hmm. years. And it's been about three years since I reached out right, to you. Not that you didn't want to do an interview. Right. It's just, you know. Yeah, life happens. You had a I whole have, a whole baby. <laughs> you've got one on the way. Right, right, I've got true. a baby. I got married. Right. Yeah. yeah life happens. I know. Mm-hmm. So what what life has happened to you since 2016? Oh, since 2016 is when I'm entering uh, three years of marriage. Yeah. Um, I got married uh, 2016, December 22nd. Congratulations. Uh, yes, yes, yes. It's been a beautiful uh, journey. Um, I think when you, I first started talking to you, I was living in Atlanta, and now yeah. I'm out here in Southern California, um, which has been great. The weather, the weather has definitely like helped me in so many ways. Really? It's, it's the sunshine. The sunshine makes That's you happy. a big happier. change because you're yeah. a New Yorker. That's a massive change to go from New York to... Los Angeles. But you know, I haven't really lived in New York since I, I left for college. I, I've moved That's back true. like a month or so uh, here and there. Mm-hmm. So I've been in D.C., Atlanta, overseas, Europe, as we were just talking yeah, about. Poland. So. Right. Spain, my favorite. Oh, Spain's nice. <laughs> yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what about personally? When you look back at yourself in 2016, mm-hmm. what has changed for you? In 2016, I was still developing, I would say, into my uh, true self, you know, trying to figure out some things because that whole transition, I stopped playing in uh, 2011. Um, I really had my struggles with mental health and just getting more confident and comfortable with who I am, you know, as a woman of of color, as a a former athlete and a person who inside just wants to help others, trying trying to line up those things and just be more effective in, in my outreach. Yeah. So it's, I would say learning to live in my truth. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, if, I, if, if we would have had this conversation in 2016, mm-hmm. I don't think I would have been able to have the, ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. I was just in a completely different place mm-hmm. mentally. And so that's why, that's why I ask you and you seem like, well, I know you are somebody that mm-hmm. is unafraid to dive deep and mm-hmm. figure yeah. out your stuff. Mm-hmm. And with those types of people, I feel like every six months you go through a massive change, right? Yes, definitely. And so, I mean, I, you know, three years ago, that's, right. that's even a bigger change. Oh, definitely. Um, I would think like for me is becoming more unapologetic. I think I, I just really accept like who I am and there's no better feeling. I was talking to uh, Susie Hamilton Favor, you know, yesterday, uh, Olympian. I said to walk in a room, right? And, you know, it's just like I walk in, there's no mask. You know, hey, all right, you can say whatever you want about me, but I'm true to me, you know, Um, and that's the way I want to move through life, you know, just being honest with myself and others. Do you think that's a female thing in terms of just being, because that conversation, Mm -hmm. this right here comes up all the time, every time Mm -hmm. I'm talking to Mm -hmm. just females in general, but Mm -hmm. also female athletes, where it's like the evolution of a woman when you get to a certain age, and I, I would say it starts to turn around 30 mm-hmm. and then also 40, 40s especially, mm-hmm. where it's like you don't give a shit about what anybody oh. thinks. And it's such, a free, <laughs> it's such a freeing thing, but mm-hmm. you don't hear men talk, say that. No. You know no. what I'm saying? Like, right. it's. So it must be a female. Well, yeah, right? I think for us as athletes too, um, you know, we're, we're taught to like say the right thing, to move a certain way. You are a lady, you know, you have to handle yourself this way. And that's something that's in the back of our minds. I know for me, um, when my grandmother was raising me, I just wanted to be the perfect child, you know, make good grades or whatever. And even my brother, my brother was allowed to screw up. 
And I, I like screw up, not so much me, you know. And so you you carry this facade, you know, this this uh, facade of perfection through life, and and you get older, and you realize, oh my God, we're all going through our stuff. Mm. Um, you know, it's just like I am who I am. You know, f everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and that happened for me. At, I would say forty. I was forty, and then I stepped into my forties. I was like, that was man, a couple years ago. Yeah, take me as I am, and I want to be around people that just love me and support me. Um, I don't want to be around, you know, just just BS. I don't have time anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a good thing about getting older is just you, you especially when you have start having a family and kids will make right. it even more so mm-hmm. where you just, you only have so much energy to go around, mm-hmm. right? Definitely. And I want to invest that energy in, in, in people that also want to invest in me, you know? Mm-hmm. I know sometimes where people are at different points and they said relationships, somebody always gives more, you know? But I'm realizing what my friends, it's, it's really become an a equal trade, you know? The people that, I'm going on vacation, people going out of their way. My wife always says, Shamiqua, man, your friends ride and die for you. Aww. You have amazing friends. Like I was going to Vegas. My wife didn't want to go for my birthday. Yeah. Um, she, I had tickets to Janet Jackson and she said, uh, no, awesome. she didn't want to go. She really? didn't like Janet Jackson. What? Yes. Oh, I'm shocked. Blasphemous. Yeah. <laughs> She's in the theater, Broadway. Uh, okay. Stuff. Okay. So I hit my friend Lakia up and she's on a plane and she goes, oh, wow, I wish I had friends like that. But it's just such your tribe. You know, you need your tribe. And those are the people that have been there for you, for me, through the good, the bad and the ugly. And now we're just chilling, you know, the next 40 years, we just want to have a good ride. But I would assume that it wasn't always like that. Right? Oh, because, no. No. <laughs> you know, I in reading more about your story and also listening to multiple interviews and you've talked about this protective, this mask. Mm -hmm. Um, So when did, when did you start investing in those relationships, but also investing in yourself? I would say after really um, facing the issues I struggle with, with my mental health, going to therapy, um, getting balanced. Because a lot of times I was really operating out of a a manic space, you know, um, struggling with my bipolar and actually not knowing that I had it. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking, oh, I'm just depressed. I have like the clinical depression, severe anxiety. And so for me, wearing that mask meant just having people around me that quiet the the noise. It's like uh, very detached friendships. Oh, your friends to go to the bar with. I would have my friends to work out with, but I was not really like totally investing. And it wasn't until I said, oh man, I went through that, that, that tough time. And I said, these people are just, why are these people here? And it was actually Coach Summit that told me, Shamiqua, in order to get your life back, Pat Summit said, in order to get your life back, you've got to get rid of these people around you. You have to hang around people that know your character and know who you are inside. She goes, I really always worried about you, even as a, a young athlete when you were in college. And I talked to your grandmother about it because you were so inviting to others. Wow. And, and into your space, you know, but I don't know. It's just a part of me. I've always been popular and not just because of sports, because I've always been kind and I loved hard and whatever I experienced, I wanted others to experience it also. But some people just, you just can't invite Tina Thompson, Olympian, yeah. UVA coach is telling me, Meek, you have to look at your life like a, a church, you know, and you can't invite everybody to the front row. And she was telling me this when I was like 22, 23 years old, but I, I didn't get it. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably didn't get it. At 22, you're still, you think you know everything, but mm-hmm. you don't. 
at 22. Right. But, you know, you go through like a, a difficult period and you see who's there for you. And, you know, all those people kind of like disappeared. And I was really like struggled, like, all right. But it was, um, you know, my friends from college, you know, Tamika Ketchins hitting me up. Hey, come visit me. You know, uh, I'm here for you. My friends that I grew up with, went to high school with in New York. And so I actually moved back to New York for like a month. Oh, no, it was actually two months. And I just had to like feel that love. I had to yeah. feel that support. Um, and that really helped me. That really healed me. And it just gave me a whole new confidence, a whole new outlook on life. Hmm. What, how old were you and, and how long ago was it when you, when you really started going into therapy and doing that, that work and investing in yourself? Well, I would say, um, my situation after incident in Atlanta, I had like a, it was sort of like a intervention, like and my friends, 2012. Yeah. Yeah. So my friends were like, listen, you got to get help. And then when you have a legal situation and, um, you know, doctors and stuff like you're really struggling, you have, you know, uh, this bipolar disorder, you got to get help. And I was in denial because being a high level athlete, I thought I could run. I thought I can jump. I can get this out of me. I'm all right. I'm mentally tough. But I had a chemical imbalance and it just really made me an inconsistent person. Now, likable, of course, because when you're a manic and you have these highs and stuff, you're the life of the party. So people always love um, being around me. It was when those people were gone and I'm home by myself and the walls are closing in and I don't know if I'm going or or coming. That that was like the really uh, tough part. But when they set me down and my friends like, we got you, we're going to get through this. And I started to see how I stabilized, how how the color started coming back in my life. I always describe it as just kind of going through the motions. It's like black and white. Oh, you know, you feel the high. Oh, I want to be there. I want to be there. But now everything slowed down and I can see like everybody getting in their position. It's always like, mm-hmm. like the chess piece movement. Oh, okay, this is the step. This person is here. I feel loved. I feel supported. Let me let down this guard. So I started really just opening up and I was back to myself. As a young kid, I went to the school, Queens Lutheran School, when I first went to live with my grandmother. And, you know, I was one of few black students there because we're Lutheran, you know, Um, in our church. It was only uh, two black families. And I just remember uh, feeling like, oh, a little uncomfortable, you know, Um, and how I changed that around because I was open. I was always a very open person. I wanted mm-hmm. to learn about my Korean friends um, when they brought food from home. Hey, you want to try it? Sure. <laughs> sure. I'm like, okay. And then I realized how I became likable. That was like an awesome time for me. I felt, I felt really good. And so I was back to that person. Like, man, like you can walk in a room. My wife always says, you have this power of just walking in a room and like, people are just like drawn to you. It's yeah. true. It's true. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I never met a stranger. <laughs> yeah. You do have a charisma about you because mm-hmm. it's, it's not, and that's besides your getting to sit down with you now and talk mm-hmm. with you face to face. That's what I enjoy the most, right? Yes. Because it would be so different to have a conversation over the phone. It's just, it's completely mm-hmm. different here. Definitely. You get to like talk to somebody, feel their energy, look right. in their eyes and being around you just, it, I mean, 20 minutes, it's, you know, you're beautiful, you're tall, you're athletic. You also have a warmth Mm -hmm. about you as well. And considering all of the the accomplishments Mm -hmm. that that you've experienced and you've put on your resume, 
that that doesn't always go hand in hand. Oh, definitely. I've I've met some people that I've looked up to. I'm sure you have also very accomplished people and you meet them and it's just such a a disappointment. You know, I'm like, oh man, why did they have to be like just, uh, but then I think too, the other side of me thinks maybe they're just having a bad day. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe they haven't done done the work. work. Exactly. exactly. Mm -hmm. And you know, when when I was listening to some of your interviews over the past, I would say year or two years, um, I was trying, you know, when you meet another athlete mm-hmm. and it's like athlete speak, right. it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. We, we're speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. You immediately understand what each other went through mm-hmm. physically, mentally, growing up and all that stuff. But then, and I haven't figured out the term for it, but it's just what you and I just said. Like you've done the work mm-hmm. and you seem like somebody, I don't want to call it mental health speak because I feel like that would give it the wrong vibe or therapy mm-hmm. speak or whatever. Yeah. But for myself, having dug deep and gone through my struggles mm-hmm. and also gotten help right. and then come out on top and healed, yes. you are somebody that understands your story so well mm-hmm. and you speak so articulately mm-hmm. about it, Thank which you. means that you're, you're healed. Yeah, I'm a work in progress. Um, every I tell people that when I'm speaking to the college athletes, they're like, oh, man, how did you get over this? I've said, I'm in recovery. <laughs> I, I choose to do the work um, every day. Um, and when the days where I can't, you know, I just have an amazing support system that's helping me push through. And again, it's just wanting to, to do it, to understand that I want to be the best wife. I want to be the best daughter. And I just want to mix make a mark, you know, the new me, I would say, um, in life. And what's your legacy going to be like after sport? You know, we all know what I did on the basketball court and that kind of carries, you know, through life with me. But I just want to like, I want people to say Shamiqua Hoskla is a great person. Shamiqua Hoskla was resilient um, and just definitely changed the heart of of people. I have a lot of opportunity to travel and to talk about uh, my challenges. But the part that I love most is going into underserved communities. And I'm not just talking about the inner city. You know, I'm talking about rural America and towns in Montana, Oklahoma, Kansas, where nobody looks like me. Mm. And you see that it's not just about talking about wellness, talking about sports. It's this black woman here letting people uh, where everyone's ear is open for me and to know that you're creating a healing and and understanding, you know, and that's the thing when people fear the unknown, you Mm. know, and now you're, you're the known, right. And they have a little bit understanding. I have so many parents that was like, oh my God, like you helped me a lot to, to understand how I'm so close minded. (laughs) So it's, it's, um, being able to touch others, make a difference. That's great. Mm-hmm. You're, I'm, I'm really interested to hear your perspective because you're really doing the work and you're out there and you're mm-hmm. making an impact and you're, mm-hmm. you're making all these trips to, to visit with so many people. Mm-hmm. But within the sports space, you talk to younger athletes, mm-hmm. college athletes. You also do a ton of stuff with at the pro level. Yes. What, um, what are your ob- observations in terms of just the overall discussion around mental health mm-hmm. with athletes? Well, sometimes it's, it's tough um, because for so long, you know, we're told to protect our space. Um, you think about, um, you know, uh, to be to be strong, to be 
tough. And when people connect the mind to, oh, I'm having these struggles, like that's a sign of weakness. Um, and a lot of people don't know how to speak up. A lot of these athletes and say, you know what, I, I need help. You know, I want to be this this great athlete, but something's holding me back. They don't know how to open up their mouths. And I'll constantly tell them a closed mouth doesn't get fed. I, I, I look around these major universities, all these resources, all these people want to help you. And I have to make them realize sometimes, listen, once you leave, if if you haven't really made your stamp as an athlete, if you don't have a street, if you don't have these things, they don't care about you. <laughs> You're just kind of like in and out and no, and they're not going to um, give you the love and support and resources as if you were here as a student. So take advantage of it. Stop, learn how to network. Learn what a good handshake is. OK, you hear athletes. Oh, I can't intern. I, I don't know what I want to do. You know, think about whatever it is, what direction. All those boosters that are there that own companies, though you know, want to help you. Hey, can I stop by the office twice a week? Uh, I want to learn and understand what you do. Make them know your face, mm. you know, and, and, um, you know, just really speak up, learning the, the, the power of your voice, you know. Um, that's been something that I've developed later, but I totally encourage them. And they get it because they're a whole new age. I know we give them a tough time. So this is at the younger level. You think, do you think college athletes get it? Um, I think they're starting to understand. Um, I have a lot of athletes and I know for me, if you would have talked about something like mental health, right, I'm sitting in my seat, yeah. my head probably would go down yeah. because I would know. And they're so empowered. I have athletes and amongst their peers stand up and say, I'm having these challenges. Because I always say, any questions? Interesting. So they're... So they're- Starting to be okay yeah, yeah. out and speaking out. Oh, yes, of, of course. And they talk about going to therapy, but you have some situations. You talk about resources, right? So you have some still some high level institutes where um, the therapy room, right, maybe an older space and they got to cross through the training room. So everybody yes. knows that they're going to therapy and they'll be like, that's why we don't go. We don't we don't want necessary people to know. Yeah, I've actually <laughs> talked to some universities where they are starting to design the layout of the of the whole training area where they put the therapy or psychologist or a sports psychologist room in a hallway where they can feel anonymous and they yeah. and they're not seen right it's so know? it's so important and even even um, that makes me a little more upsetting it's when you expect the athletes, right, who all wear pretty much the same gear. You're easily identified. I don't care if you are on a sport that people really don't talk about. They know who you are. You're a part of yeah. that community. How can you send them to the counseling center? You know, people are going to be like, especially nowadays, yeah. take a selfie, take a picture. Oh, my God. I saw a prim in the counseling office and, you know, this may go on loud. Oh, this right. kid is not playing well. They're a head case. This, you know, you just never know. So that um, runs a lot of people away. They don't they don't want to get the help. So what's, the, what's the answer to that? Answer is having conversations, letting people know it's okay, creating a safe space. I had the opportunity to go to University of Michigan and I was talking to the head psychologist, their sports psychologist, and he made a great point. He said, all right, the way we have set it up, he goes, I make sure I scheduled appointments like 15 minutes Mm -hmm. um, apart. And he goes, one day we ran over. 
And he goes, I just got this chill through my body. Like, oh my God, the athletes are going to see each other. And he goes, because it's such a positive thing and they talk about it constantly, they walk through and they cross and they gave each other a high five. <laughs> and he was like, oh my God, this is, this is, this is beautiful. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting that he scheduled it so they don't run into each other. Run into each other. Yeah. Everybody uh, going through their struggles. Yeah. And when you're young, you just, oh, I'm the only one. I've been there. I'm yeah. the only one going through this. Nobody. Nobody understands. And in reality, that we're all struggling, especially, you know, you're trying to figure out who you are as a, as an individual, you know, you, you could be the highly, most highly recruited athlete on your team in high school or whatever in the nation and get to college and not play like one minute. Come on, you're going to be sad. You could suffer depression. I need a tissue. (laughs) (laughs) No, my, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, that was definitely my experience in transition going to college. And I, I know you've kind of talked about your transition going to college and how that was a, that was a pretty tough one, but I want to, before we hit some of those transitions, mm-hmm. I want, I want everybody to know a little bit more about your, your story. Cause your story is really cool about where you came from and everything. <sighs> you really went through some stuff as a kid. Uh, uh, trauma, uh, yeah. trauma. Um, my, both my parents, you know, my mom had me and she was relatively young, 19, uh, dad, 21, 22. And, you know, I just remember my childhood, you know, we would have, you know, family trips to, to Rockaway, to the beach, um, always got together. I felt love. I felt supported. And that's something I always have to remind people. But my parents were young trying to figure it out, went through their tough times, um, drunk a lot. You know, it would be like, all right, we go to this family, have this family day. It's awesome. We're playing. Everything always ended with the bottles coming out, you know, and me and my brother, we were taken away from my parents, um, by the state. <laughs> How old? Now were your parents al- alcoholics? Yeah, they were, they were okay. alcoholics. And your dad also dealt with yeah. some stuff And, well. and it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, my dad was a, was an alcoholic, but after going through my challenges and understanding more of what he was dealing with as, uh, as far as being, uh, having schizophrenic disorder, mm-hmm. he will have severe hallucinations mm-hmm. and think about it. If he's having these things, talking to himself, the alcohol is just a masking thing. I, I had to learn that later in life. My dad one time, uh, threatened, well, he, well, he said, Oh my God, I got to protect you guys. He's going to put us down a incinerator. I'm going to put you guys in the bag and put you down in the incinerator. And my mom, like, freaked out, called my grandmother. We had to leave. How old were you? Oh, um, probably 10, 11. So you were, you were old enough to really remember. Yeah, but still, it's dysfunctional, right? That's what I heard. That's what the police said that day when they took us to the police station. But that's my mom and dad. I, I, I love them. So now I'm moving from a middle-class area, right, in, in, in Queens, Jamaica, Queens, going to live with my grandmother in Astoria Housing Projects, uh, the over stimulation. Um, my parents are now in rehab, getting help. Well, we they what happened was my mom had to go to rehab. My dad didn't because they weren't married. So technically, wow. you know, it's, that's a whole nother thing <laughs> about the name Host Club. We'll yeah. talk about that <laughs> <laughs> next. We'll talk about that next. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and where was where did basketball and sports come into your life? In Astoria Housing Project. Okay, so that was after after you moved in with your 
Yeah, yeah. I, I have earlier days when my mom she used to play handball, and I'm not talking about the Olympic handball. <laughs> back back in New York, we played with the little blue ball, and uh, it was almost like racquetball, and they just hit it with their hand yeah. and against the wall. <laughs> whatever. And that's what you guys did as as little kids. Yeah, she played that. She would go with her friends, and so it was always a basketball court there. And I have early memories of me playing and throwing it underhand and trying to hit the goal. And when we moved, I played tennis first. That was my first sport. Are you serious? Tennis. Tennis was my first sport. You so good at tennis. I know. I I wish I would have kept up with it. You could have been been Serena and Venus before Serena and Venus. I know that. (laughs) I miss my chance. Oh, my God. But, yeah, my my babysitter in Jamaica, Queens, when I lived with my parents, uh, she played a lot of tennis, Miss Harvey. Um, and she would take us, she would take us to go play. And we, I was on a doubles team or whatever. So I was exposed to that. But when you move to the inner city, yeah, they had a little tennis court, oh, yeah. but it's the dual courts with the basketball goals. Yes. They ripped that shit up, <laughs> throw it to the side. We playing, we playing basketball because, you know, people couldn't afford tennis rackets yeah. and, and all that gear. So you just need a ball. You know, basketball, any types of shoes. New York, they're everywhere, basketball courts. And for me, it was right outside my grandmother's uh, window. She was pretty strict about a lot of discipline and structure. So she would let me go play and watch me from the window. And that's how I fell in love with it. I I wanted to invest a lot of my time outside of school because she was strict with the academics. You got to make good grades. You know, change your uniform first, do your, do your homework, and then you can go play. <laughs> and so I, I found that as my, my safe space, um, my coping mechanism in a lot of ways, because my, fam- my parents were still going through their stuff. You know, they tell you, oh, I'm coming to pick you up. And I, I was really the kid like in the movies with the bag waiting. Mm-hmm. One o'clock passes, two o'clock, they're still not there. My grandmother's like, oh, you can go back in your room and I go tear it up because I'm upset. You know, I'm like really sad. They didn't come. They don't love me. That's what I started telling myself. And my grandmother realized that I was dealing with um, sadness, depression. So she took me um, to a therapist um, at the community center. But as we know, in urban America, inner city, it's always like the kids who are maybe studying at Columbia in the center doing uh, counseling or whatever, mm-hmm. and no one looks like you. <laughs> right. like, like, you don't look like me. I'm, I'm, I, I was able to, like, New York City's diverse, so you, you see different faces, yeah. but in that community, it's a lot of minorities. And so here's the, the white guy who's, like, you know, prim and proper <laughs> trying to talk to me. And culturally, what happens in your household, for me, this is what I heard happens in your household stays in your household so now you want me to open up and talk about my feelings and emotions prim he had to nerf basketball hoop and that's how he tried to get me to talk he was like all right shoot your grandmother says you like basketball shooter i'm trying to talk i'm like i don't know you (laughs) that's interesting culturally it was whatever happens in your household stays in your household Mm -hmm. was that why why is that culturally Oh no! Oh, I just so it's not just your family. No, you notice that in in other uh, other other, other homes. Uh, it's just something weird, you know. If you think about the oppression of you know of, of black people, African Americans, however you want to call it, it's just this thing like we can push through. You know, let's mm-hmm. let's work together. We 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 don't want to share all the bad things. That's that's a lot of people I'm realizing, especially like my Asian friends, and you know, like you got to make good grades. You don't talk about your feelings and, and yeah, emotions. Especially with my yeah, coming from an Asian background, uh-huh. it's very, um, very normal to suppress your emotions. It's right. just something that's um, 
we, as I, I think, um, not to generalize, but mm-hmm. from what I've seen and it, through my own personal experience, mm-hmm. Asian cultures t- typically like to suppress their emotions. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's less about, I don't know if um, it's so much about what happens in your home stays in your home, mm-hmm. but it's definitely the mindset of you don't want to look imperfect. Right. Uh, definitely. Definitely. But I think that's the same. It was the same for us. It's like we, we deal with stuff. You just don't discuss your personal business. No one out there needs to know. Family stuff stays in here in, in, in this house. Uh, again, my grandma used to say about my temper tantrums. Oh, yeah. Take, tear up your room. Take out your stuff here. Just don't do it out there because you're in an uncontrolled environment. I'm in a story of housing projects. I start raging and stuff and get upset fighting. Someone may hurt me. You know, so that's just the mindset I had, you know, just protect my family, protect me. You know, I'm not talking to people that are I'm unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. And that's how I kind of went through through life. Certain certain things I just keep to myself. Mm-hmm. So what what was your connection? So, it, you know, you're going through this huge transition. Mm-hmm moving away from your parents mm-hmm. and how often were you seeing your parents at that point? Oh, maybe, maybe like once or twice a month. Oh, wow. So that must've been really tough. Mm. And then that coincided with you picking up basketball. Yes. And so what's the connection between your mental health and basketball looking back at everything? Um, I would say I was became obsessed with it because the one thing that I could control I couldn't control my parents. I realized that um, that heartache, that pain, it was out of my control. But this thing, that basketball, this was mine. This is something I chose to do. It made me feel good. And I protected that from 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 them. Like, I, this is mine. Leave me alone. And uh, it came it became the point my mom started getting healthy. I didn't want her at my games. I wasn't I wasn't really uh, embarrassed by her. I was I was hurt by her. But this was mine and I was going to invest everything into it. So I think a lot, I I just, basketball, this became like my focus, you know, academics also because grandma didn't play, but I was just in such a zone, you know, it's almost like chasing that high, the thing that makes you uh, feel good because I don't want to deal with reality. Reality is that I'm broken. Like I have this hate, disdain for my mom. Um, and not so much my dad for some reason. It was just my mother. It's just like, I don't like you. <laughs> like, th- you're supposed to protect me, that whole superhero complex that yeah. people think. And it took me years to realize and go through my own stuff. Oh, my God. I need to tell her I'm, I apologize, you know, for judging you. It's out of your control. She was young trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. The, when you were talking about your connection with basketball and, and using it as a way to find control in your life. Mm-hmm. I got chills all over my body, which means <laughs> that that's that we're hitting on something that's really important, mm-hmm. not only to you, mm-hmm. but I think that mm, other athletes could mm-hmm. probably really relate to. Mm-hmm. Do you, when you when you talk to other athletes and mm-hmm. you know their story, do you see some of your story in theirs? Um, a lot of, a lot of it. And also in the way that sports can be really, that's a good coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. But if, if not managed carefully as you evolve as an adult, Mm -hmm. it it can also turn toxic. Oh, definitely. It's a lot of skills we don't, um, I would say it's a lot of skills we don't develop in, in athletics, especially when you're good. 
um, because people coach you. I always say you're, you're like coached. You know, since the time when people were like, oh my God, 11 years old, Shamiqua can, 12 years old, Shamiqua is good at this game. Oh, she could be something special. You're almost like you're protected, you know. Um, whatever I ask for, the best shoes I'm going to get. Um, you have, oh my gosh, Shamiqua Holtzclaw's on this team. Hey, what do you need? I'm dealing with trauma. I would get so upset. I'm frustrated with things. I'm throwing basketball. You know, you have teammates. It's going to be okay. Just get ready for the next game. You know, parents telling you, don't pass the ball to my daughter. Like, just score it. Oh, you wow. know, it's, it's, it's like I was very catered to. And if you think about it, this is a, a lot of athletes that I talk to, especially these big schools, they're the best of the best. And they identify with being protected and kind of pushed along the way. Like, we hear about it. Unfortunately, in some settings where academically the student athletes aren't, aren't doing the work, it's very different playing for Pat Summit, I would say. <laughs> but, you know, we, we know of those, of those stories. And, you know, they sit there and I talk about it. They're like, yeah. And some of them may, may laugh. And so you, you're this person, right? All, all through, you know, college, growing up or whatever. Now that transition happens. You may not go play pro. You, you don't know the, the you don't know how to communicate with people, mm. how to ask for things. That's the number one. Yeah, that's like because ask. When you're, when you're really talented. Mm-hmm. People just come to you with, uh, things. with things. And so you so is there a distinction between being an elite big time athlete, mm-hmm. super gifted, as opposed to like the rest of the athletes because you you were you were on a totally different platform mm-hmm. and you were dubbed like right. the next female michael jordan mm-hmm. so do you, is there a difference yeah look at all my friends i went to a very successful uh high school so most of us got college scholarships mm-hmm. and i look at my friends now that just went and had a great college experience you know played at a good school some ivy league and you know they finish with that they move along in life you know they didn't have to deal with that pressure mm-hmm. um and that stress, you know, they, all right, all right I'm going to sit the bench, <laughs> but I'm going to learn to, to make good grades and communicate, make other friendships, um, uh, you know, other students, students, not just student athletes, not just staying in the bubble, you know? And so I would say they were way more well-rounded as much as I've been exposed to, I'm talking about worldly, you know, all this stuff going to eat with presidents and high level execs they're in a better better position because they had to work a little bit more socially mm-hmm. and and yeah they were they were advanced <laughs> that's that's a really that's a really good point mm-hmm. and so when you're a little bit more well-rounded you're able to focus and develop other yeah, interests yeah definitely which definitely. makes the transition out of sport much 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 easier. much much easier so when you're put on a pedestal especially if you're you're super talented mm-hmm. And it's all sport. That's going to make the transition that much tougher. It's, it's tougher because um, even though sports was a, a big part of my life, I, I just always felt like um, it's what I do. It's not who I am. And that was like my conflict, you know, and, and my different interests. And so for me now, even as a 42 year old woman, I have to deal with why are you not coaching constantly? No, why are you not working in, in sports? And even when I say, you know, I just feel like I'm doing the work a higher powers called me to do and I'm fulfilled and I'm happy. It's still like, come on, man. Like you were one of the best. Like people put you in that in that box. And this is the, the path you're supposed to take. And I, I really struggle with that. Well not anymore because I know who I am, but 
It sometimes it, it's, it bothers me when I constantly hear that. You know, I was walking up the block today. I didn't tell you this. The guy was like, are you that basketball player? Where you coaching that now? Oh, wow. And I was really? like, I, I don't coach. What, girl? Man, you was a bad one. <laughs> and I just, wow. I was just like the smile. And sometimes, you, you know, you question yourself like, wow, I was one of the, the best. You know, why am I not doing this? But, you know, I had this uh, awakening and I went through these tough times and this is where I'm at right now in my life. And, and I'm happy. <laughs> but that's, that is, that's infuriating. Mm-hmm. And even though fans don't mean to come off that mm-hmm. way, but that is the fault of being in a sports obsessed mm-hmm. culture, culture. And society mm-hmm. where it almost it makes me think like there's less room for athletes to to have other interests a voice um you know right. we're struggling now i mean we're going through a time where they just hey just play don't speak don't don't um focus on activism you know we're just supposed to stay in our lane but we're so much more you know people i used to walk in the locker room this is before the whole news on the phone and you had players reading newspapers players that had other interests you know wanted to go to the museums and were very cultured you know but that's that's not who we're supposed to be right so when you you talking about your relationship with basketball, so mm-hmm. you can you make that transition mm-hmm. when you're 11 years old and you're starting to pick it up. Did that become? Did it feel like your security blanket in some ways, or mm-hmm. it did? It did. It did. Um, again, um, now living my grandmother's, you're almost even though you're in New York, it's really tough because it's not like growing up in a country fire town and you don't have resources. But so it's it's different when you're um, New York City. And you don't have the resources. You get what I'm saying? It's like you really do because you're in New York City and you're getting free tickets to games at the Garden. You're getting free tickets with the community to Yankees games, the Mets games. So I was exposed to a lot. The economic disparity yeah, in New York it, is, is crazy. It, it is. Just because you're next to opportunity does not mean you get that same opportunity. Right, right. But, exactly. And I see that living in New York. And yeah, it's crazy. Definitely. So here I am, but I was good at basketball, right? So I got to go to some of the best schools. I was always like, the black girl, you know, on, on the team and everybody knew I was going to be good. So it opened um, my world up. Right. But still, you know, like imagine your teammates, family driving you home and, you know, on the, the bins and, you know, they have the beach house and this and they're dropping you off, you know, in, in the projects. And I'm like, damn, like this is wow. Like I want that life one day. And my grandmother used to tell me education's the key and it's not where you're from. Is where you're, you're going. So I learned to like look at things a little bit different. I, w- I was always asked a lot of questions. Um, hey, do you want to go, you know, to um, this, this museum? Sure. I, I wanted to go. It it just fueled something in me to see what else was, was out there. And I, I think that part has really helped me in life. Like I was telling you earlier, I'm yeah. just a, always been a very open person, wanting to learn. But, you know, you, you still deal with that as a, as a, as a child. Like you're kind of I was kind of like embarrassed, you know. I, I didn't know. Like I, I wanted more. Like how can I get it? And me and Ron are to want those things. Um, yeah, embarrassed that you didn't have those things and you want them. Right. And you, you know, Especially it's like if you're rolling around with friends that have, you know, man, like very, things. very, very successful. I remember. 16 and people were getting I would, oh they would have driving Lexus to school and stuff and you're taking the bus you know but it was always something like I'm gonna get there I remember telling one of my friends one day I was like I don't know like I'm gonna be one of the best and I'm gonna be successful 
to see that it really happened. <laughs> it did happen. It, 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 it did. It did happen. You reached the pinnacle of WNBA success mm-hmm. um, and more. Yeah. And you definitely, you know, kind of blaze a trail. But then there was also the flip side of it mm-hmm. where you probably weren't expecting all of that other stuff. But I mean, what, so what was that transition? You just made like? me take a deep breath. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> yeah, why? Um, you just made me take the deep breath because when I get anxiety about some things, I do a lot of meditation and my um, psychiatrist always walks me through, just breathe, just breathe. And so you took me on a journey just now when you, when you said it, because when I thought about sport bro, and, and, I, and I thought about just the highs of it, I thought about just being that one to be that kid again, that just enjoy the game. Just in, and just enjoy picking up that basketball. I had this vision of me, you know, running through um, story projects to run to Astoria Park and, and back. And people were like, why are you running? Oh, man, because I got to be in the best shape to, 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 to play. And that was fun to me, you know. And then, you know, I became uh, a college star. And it was just like people never wanted to hear almost what I had to say they wanted just to see the performance piece, you know, and I was trying to figure out a lot of things as a, a young person. Now, I left my grandmother's protective environment, you know, uh, to go to Coach Summits and follow her rules. And she's an amazing mentor. I've had two amazing women in my life and they were just such good, a good pair to work together to help me. But you're telling me I have 21, 22 years old. Now I got my own house in Washington, D.C. My face is all on billboards and stuff. How do I I manage? I'm living by myself. Um, Going to practice. Again, it's the disparity and pay for a lot of WNBA players. So I'm looking around like, oh, I have these things and stuff. My teammates don't, you know, some sometimes, you know, people within the organization had not necessarily my teammates, but I, again, I don't know. But it was I felt like there was this like jealousy almost, you know, like it was just really tough. And I always try to just like come down Even my high school coach, Coach Summit, too. You're different. Yeah. <laughs> You're a special um athlete you're a special person but I always very inclusive because it's the way that I was raised like I said earlier I always wanted people to experience it with me so if you talk to um teammates that I played with oh my god they'll be like oh my god we love you you know um we support you they're so proud of me because they're like you're the same you're just so chill but when you look on the outside of that sports, it was like I was supposed to be this dominant person, this, this strong person. So I was constantly in um, in conflict because I didn't like all the attention. I had a friend tell me, and uh, I don't want to call, I don't call out, but she's an Olympic runner, right? She said, "Oh my God, you're just too humble. You gotta know how to promote yourself." <laughs> if I was you, oh my goodness, I would just be eating it up. And I'm looking like, oh, oh okay, you know, I just always been macho. I would say, yeah. um, laid back. So I, it's a part of me. I didn't take advantage of every opportunity, but in a sense, I was okay with that. But a lot of people didn't understand that other side of me. You're not the first person, the first athlete that's talked about that, that fame, that attention. Mm-hmm. There is a responsibility mm-hmm. uh, and a level of expectation that's very heavy. Mm-hmm. And I think to the outside, to the outsider, you would just think, well, it's a privilege. Mm-hmm. It's an honor. Right. You wouldn't enjoy that. But 
Yeah. I mean, there's just been so many athletes that have talked about you lose the privacy. There's more expectation. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, the, the public, especially being a tall, strong athlete, they expect you to be that way on a personal level. Oh my God. On the court, <laughs> off the court all the time. And you're yeah. like, why do I, and they put you, they want to put you in a box. Yeah, they do. Um, mm-hmm. So, but when I ask you the question about transitioning mm-hmm. from New York and then college and pros and you, you it, it kind of hit a nerve. I could tell that you got emotional. Yeah. What, what comes to the surface when you think about that transition? Is it college? Is it pro? Like what comes to the surface? Um, the the cultural difference going to college wanting to find your tribe and you know I went to a school I didn't realize it was ninety eight percent Caucasian two percent other and not that I wasn't around diversity growing in New York and predominant a lot of the private schools I went to were mostly white but now it's like in a sea of it you know and I can't get on a train I I said where's the Puerto Rican people <laughs> well, you know like what oh uh, they're looking at me like I'm, I'm crazy uh where the Asian people. <laughs> Uh, at the International Student Building. And I'm like so confused. And I remember my college roommate, uh, Zakia, she ran track. I remember her, she she popped up and said, obviously you didn't read. It's 98% Caucasian too. And I, and, I, and I just was like, oh, wow. So it was just a different environment that I had to um, get used to. And I really struggled. I wanted to transfer. Um, but Coach Summit talked to my grandmother and, you know, I learned to work through that. And I'm glad I did because I had one of the best experiences, um, three national championships, um, you know, really made a, a name for myself. Um, the university did very well. And, you know, Pat Summit's a rock star. And, and uh, but it was still, you know, having to perform. And we lost that fourth championship. Everybody's like disappointed. People are funny. (laughs) Like everyone on on paper, Mm -hmm. there's so much to talk about. Uh I mean, there's those those three consecutive championships. Uh You also had that undefeated season when you went thirty nine and zero. Yes, Um, you were the four time Kodak All America. Mm -hmm. Just one of six women's basketball players to ever earn the honor. All time leading scorer Mm -hmm. and rebounder at Tennessee SEC history, NCAA women's tournament history. There's all this stuff going on. And then you, within like a matter of 30 seconds, you talk about that one championship that you guys lost. Right, see, see. <laughs> but I guess that's that's the culture of when you go to a championship caliber program. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, that, and that one let down. And I remember being in a locker room at Duke. Duke, your oh, school, yeah. uh, cost me that number four. And it was never a game where myself, uh, Tamika Ketchens, and Samika Randall, the three Meeks, mm-hmm. all had a bad game. We were just, yeah, Tamika on the, be- on the bench. Oh, why are we on the bench? And uh, Samika's trying to get it done. She had hurt her ankle. It was just really bad. And I remember crying. I didn't want to do media after the game. Tears. And Coach Summers said, just like you handled the success, you got to handle the failure and you move forth. And I had things to look forward to. You know, you, you're going to, you're, now you're flying to Nike. You know, they want to sign you. Everybody on the campus got your shirt. You're getting the videos from Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan wanting you to be a part of the the brand. Just, it was just like so much excitement, you know, the Gatorade stuff and blah. So I was just like, I had no time to like think. It was just moving so fast. And these are things you wish for as a kid, you yeah. know, like I want to be on TV. I want to, I want to do this, but I just wasn't prepared for, because in a sense, 
um, no one had ever walked that walk. So I didn't really have anybody to follow their example. It was just me out there. And even the agents, because my agent at first was like, oh, I think we'll get a contract for this much. And he was basing it off another athlete. And I, and I was like, really? I was like, mm. <laughs> uh, to this day, we end up getting like three times more <laughs> on awesome. one contract. Cause it, it was like, I, I was like, I'm, I'm different, you know? <laughs> and, um, just trying to go to DC, I'm back in the city, um, a lot more distractions and, and things that I saw of, of so, that sort and best player, right? Mm-hmm. Number one pick. Yeah. Where do you go to the worst? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I would say I, I won rookie of the year and we went from, I guess, three games the year before they won. Mm-hmm. I think we won 12 or 15. So, yeah, I did. So, something. Yeah, yeah. But that's a, that, that's a lot of responsibility. So where was where was your mental health and your, your state um, of just well-being? In college, and then as you transition to the pros, what was going on behind that? Uh, a lot was going on behind the, the mask. Um, dealing, I never processed or dealt with the trauma I was experiencing. Um, from you're talking about from childhood. childhood, I never dealt with it, and and the hate I had for my mother. Um, and my mother didn't even come. I I didn't think no, she didn't come to my college graduation. I didn't want it. Really? My father came. Um, and it was just like, I was just very fragile. And I think that's the thing too, why I was just like always like so loving or whatever, because I, I, I wanted that. My grandmother gave me that and, you know, I kind of masked it for so long, but when my grandmother died, that's when everything just kind of like came out. I felt like I had no one. And in all actuality, I had a lot of people that would have loved me and supported me through it. But I didn't know like the power of my voice and speaking up and say, hey, I need some help because I thought you just put on that brave coat. Like I said earlier, I didn't want my grandma to ever worry about me. You know, I, I she she had blind faith. She took me and my brother in. She had raised her kids, but took us in um, to help us out. And so I'm going to do right. I'm going to be perfect. And that's how I try to, to move through life. And here I have kinks in my armor and I don't I don't I'm all right. I'm going to be all right. I'm going to push through. But I cracked. I, I cracked. It was it was rock bottom. Um, I started like masking it. The, those feelings, of emotional alcohol. And when did that? When did your grandmother? How old were you when your grandmother? Oh, passed? it was uh 2002. She passed. So what was I? Probably like 25, 26 years old. Okay, so it was a little bit after you had graduated. Yeah, yeah. Two to three years into the WNBA at that point. Yeah, but it was bad. I mean, <sighs> and did that trigger? Some of the coping, did it trigger everything or had they had some of the things started before your grandmother had passed? No, they, it was there. It was there. I was, I was, the depression was there. Um, I just learned, I became a professional at, um, you know, uh, masking, uh, people pleasing. Oh yeah. I can say the right things. You know, you were coached <laughs> all through life. I know what to say to the press. I know what, oh, I'm good. I, you know, everything is great, great, great. But when you go home, and I'm just like sitting on the couch. I, I'm not motivated, but I know how. All right, it's time for practice. Let me get in my zone because that's easy. It's almost like, hey, riding a bike. I can do this in my sleep. Um, thing is, again, it's not sustainable. You got to deal with the emotional stuff. You know, you got to be emotionally healthy. And when my grandmother passed, boy, I'm telling you, it's all these thoughts. The suicidal ideation started hitting harder. I wanted to, to be with her. 
masking, drinking, drinking. But when you drink and you try to cover up these things, uh, they're still there. You know, you get you sober up. It, it, it's still there. Um, you think the partying and the nightlife is going to help. But again, it's just other bad behaviors and, you know, moving and grooving through relationships and, you know, not feeling connected to anybody. And I didn't feel emotionally connected. And there's probably people um, who really, um, I look back, really love me and, and wanted to invest in me, but I couldn't invest in, my, in myself. And it just got worse and worse. When did the drinking start? And, and the only reason why I'm asking this is because mm-hmm. I, I know there are other athletes mm-hmm. or just people in general who mm-hmm. might be going through the same thing. Because at that age, mm-hmm. when you're in, in college or in your early 20s, mm-hmm. Drinking is cool. Yeah, it's cool. Socially yeah. acceptable thing to do. And if you're wasted, mm-hmm. it's still funny. It's just funny yeah, at that point. You yeah. know what I mean? And even if, because I had some friends that, that definitely were looking back at it, they, they definitely struggled mm-hmm. with being alcoholics. And, you know, but at the time it's like, but they're, they're cool. They, they are the people that are the life of the party mm-hmm. and everybody wants to go over to their house. And so uh-huh. when did it start really for you? And probably my second year in DC, uh, second, okay, so thir- not, second, not third in college, year. but it was no, in college. I, I would have an occasional drink. I, I found out what a keg was in college from the sorority girls that lived on my floor. <laughs> and they were like, Oh, you want to come to the keg? Party? So I'm going over to, uh, one of these sorority, maybe Kyle Megas. Like I don't know, you know, <laughs> I'm going, Oh yeah. All right, cool. They really was doing it. Like, like on those movies on TV with the hoes yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't, like, people really do this? Yeah, I wasn't pulled into that because I, I have parents that, you know, were alcoholics. I don't want to be like them. That's Imagine that in the back of your head and then going through my shit. And now I'm drinking. I'm not drinking beer. I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, start off with the peach schnapps. <laughs> Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Oh, man, a, a white Russian, a mudslide. And then you're like, no, don't drink that because calories. And they're like, no, just drink a shot of tequila. But, oh, okay. And this is like, a, a, takes you on a different ride. And I'm not in Tennessee. I'm in D.C. now. Um, you get a lot of different people around you. People don't have your best interests, but it's fun, right? Yeah. You're around a lot of celebrities. Mm-hmm. You're moving it, moving and grooving. And that was when I just really um, started just fall, falling apart and eventually um, asked to be traded. You know, because I thought at that age, the grass is green on the other side. And I came out to here in, in L.A. and they were great here. Um, they got me off the back of psychiatrists and a, and a therapist. So I would go and to was counseling. That you reaching out to them or did they, they did, knew? Did people, I, knew did people know your situation? Well, not at first. And then finally I came out publicly. Um, I think it was Rachel. Uh, well, what's my girl's name? I'm, I'm having a brain freeze. Uh, Rachel from the ESPN. Uh, oh, Nichols. Yeah, Nichols. I, I know yeah. that. I know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Rachel came yeah. over to Spain and um, she did a story because uh, that was my way of getting away and running, going to play in Spain and just being there playing. And next thing you know, she comes over and I've started just talking about like the depression and things of that sort. Still very guarded. Um, so when I came over to LA, DC didn't want to trade me, but the sports sports world, especially women's sports world, are so small. Mm-hmm. So things get back. Oh, she's a head case. Um, she's crazy. But one thing people fail to understand in my journey with sports, people always knew. People always knew. Uh, here in LA, they knew. That's why they got me to psychiatrists and, and, a, and a therapist. People just... 
Yeah, you know, but it's the thing. It's a just negative thing just follow. You know, I'm like, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard, hard time. I, I don't feel right. But people want the product. I was still able to be an, a, a great basketball player, you know, and I was had all this stuff going through my mom living by the beach in Venice. And then it just turned to and I'm, I'm in the best shape. The first year out here was uh, was amazing. Oh, I get to play Lisa Leslie. This is mm, cool. Oh, yeah. you know, we bought the ball out. <laughs> and I felt good. But again, I was on proper medication, whatever. In my head, it's like, oh, I'm good now. I don't need to take this medicine no more. Um, I'm natural. I don't need, need all this stuff. And it turned into driving to practice, uh, wanting to crash my car, you know, thinking about really like killing myself. Would I be missed and stuff? And and then I was, uh, in my in my words, off the wagon um, again, found myself on the suicide watch at Sentinella Hospital because I, I tried to overdose. Um, it was just a very bad, bad time time for me. Um, and it, it gets me choked up because uh, whew, mm, mm. Uh, just uh, looking back. Um, whew, sorry. No, I mean, um, this is this is losing that losing that hope. I lost I lost hope. But I was so supported and so loved, you know, and that's the thing, having to deal with that guilt. It was really tough, but still, like, I just had to go through, like, some really tough times. And, you know, as I walked through this journey, oh, God, to be where I am today, I had to. I, I, I had to. I was in denial. My mother went to rehab. Uh, Smithers, a famous place in New York. Uh, I guess uh, Doc Gooden and some of those guys went there. She went to rehab the first time. We're walking up the block when she got uh, when she finished, and I hear her talk about having her first drink. I asked my mother years later after she sobered up. Actually, I didn't ask her. I read some of her letters because when you're in AA rehab, you write a lot. You have to make amends, and um, I read how she was in denial. And and um, she didn't get better until she got out of her own way and realized if she didn't, she was going to lose her kids for good. Because I was kind of like done with her already. Yeah. And I said, wow, like this is the same journey I'm on. I'm in denial about the things that I'm that I'm dealing with. Like I knew that I, I needed help, but it's just the stubbornness. You think you can just work through it, you know, deal with the inside. A lot of those things keep what happens inside your household, you, you know, you, you stays in your household. So I'm having this super internal um, conflict, thinking relationships, thinking drinking, thinking the social aspect is going to heal me. But I had to do the work to heal myself. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that when you're doing the work, there's usually a lot of the, a lot of the struggle and pain. Dad, you just blinded me, girl. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I was like trying to see if this is a tear. <laughs> and then that rain caught me in the uh, caught me in the <laughs> Ooh, Okay. Uh, you know, the Center Stone has been their fam- my husband's family for two Oh, years. okay. It, it caught me in the eye for real. <laughs> it was like, it was like Fat Joe real quick. He came to yeah. one of my games at the Liberty. Um, in this series, he had these huge diamond earrings on. And that's for people that don't know Fat Joe, the, the rapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A terror squad. And it was glistening when you're running up the court. That's fat, Joe. Though. Serious. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I love the ring because it reminds me of, like, where the family has been, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's 
you know, kind of similar to our conversation, like mm-hmm. history is beautiful, but it, it can also be really, really painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why people, it, you know, there's a lot of people that say, why look in the past? It doesn't matter. Like what? But to me, in my opinion, I think that sometimes the past is so important because it tells us where we came from, who we are, and also it can be the source of a lot of our own issues. And mm-hmm. I always say that in order to move forward in life, sometimes we have to go backwards mm-hmm. because it's those things that, that keep snagging us. Yes, you know? you're right. You're definitely so when when you were going through your issues and that particular day mm-hmm. when when you were just ready to give up, but then as you worked through, did the work and went through therapy, mm-hmm. what was the one thing or issues that that was like? that you were really holding on to and it was, it was causing you to, to snag through life. Um, I had to realize, and, and um, I had to look in the mirror, seriously, uh, I had a mantra. I am not perfect. I had to tell myself, just forget all the BS. Like, oh, this kid, Shamiko has a nice smile. She's super so like, I am a wreck. <laughs> I have to understand that I'm, I want to be better. I want to get back to my, if normal is a word, right? Uh, my normal self and, and, and be balanced. And it was it was a lot of hard work, um, cutting people out of your life. Um, I always say people, places, and things that don't let make me feel good about who I am, I have to let it go. It may be that song in the car that triggers me or something. I have to cut it off. And even now, my wife, she's like, oh my God, we can't, oh, I don't want to watch that. Mm. And um, she's like, why? And I, I don't want to discuss, I just don't want to watch it. And um, I'm just very aware of that. And she's just like, oh my God, why? Sometimes I don't even explain it to her, but she's like, oh God, you know, it's a world happening outside of this house, you know, and you have to deal with it, you know? And, I, and I'm and i like, you know what? Yeah, there's a world, you know, I'm from New York. I'm, I'm built for this, you know, but <laughs> it, I don't have to deal with certain things, you know what I'm saying? So I know for me, my friends are like, Shamika, you always live like in, in your bubble. But you know what? I'm in my bubble, but I'm healthy mm. and, I, and I'm happy. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't have to, to be out there and be at every event, every party. That's not healthy for me because that stimulates me too much. I, and that's what I struggle with. I, I have to, as far as stimulation, I have to be like really, really balanced because that over that, that high puts me in, um, in mania. You know, it, it could, it, it could. So I'm just very aware of that. Mm-hmm. When did you find out that you were dealing with bipolar issues? Whoa, 2013, um, after my uh, incident uh, in, in Atlanta. And you know, people could go Google that. I really don't like to talk about that because it, it triggers because I really didn't recognize that that person. I dealt with mania before during my time in, in D.C. when I was all across the ESPN tickers. I was missing in action. That was after like my grandmother. I had that... Um, Oh, what would the therapist describe it as when she pa- she passed away? I can't think of the word right yeah, now. Yes, PTSD. Yeah, it, it came it came back like it came two years after that I that I was just got into a really bad funk, you know, and was yeah. thinking about her. So that situation it was almost like a delayed reaction. Yeah, yeah, and that happens to a lot of people that experience uh, trauma. Something reminded me of her, and, and she was saying that what prompted your incident with the whole, right, you, the, the bat and the gun yeah, with yeah. your ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. she was saying that 
was a delayed reaction from your grandmother's passing. Yeah, like that you just—you you just no that that actually wasn't the situation when I was in. Um, sorry, we didn't explain it. When I was in D.C., mm-hmm. I went missing in action, and I was yeah, and that was like I was uh, manic. They the team and my uh, my team they, they all got me to this therapist. I was uh, suicidal. Um, we were trying to figure things out. Blah blah. Coach Summit flew to town. That was like a whole journey. But um, Atlanta, I was just a transition. Like I tore my Achilles. I was just really like depressed. And I just remember all of a sudden, like feeling these highs and, um, people understand when you're like operating in that space, you feel invincible. It's like a false reality, this level of elation. It, It feels really, really good. And I just remember, um, my cousin, I remember I was telling you my family is also like Native American. Mm. Um, Thurman and Casal's mom had called me. She was th- stage four cancer. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away. Make sure I always watch after them, take care of my first cousins. Man, I was like so much. I just want somebody to hear me. It, it wasn't even directed towards anybody. And unfortunately, going through challenges like this, it affects your family and those that are closest to you. Mm-hmm. And it was something that was uncharacteristic as me. So having to, to work through all that, really diving, man, they, they set me down, the therapist. This is me every time talking 100 miles per hour. And I was like, I remember saying, I'm not going to no psychiatrist. Again, you can't sit me down for 10 minutes and tell me I need to take these drugs. Like, oh, I'm, I'm done. And, and then I had told my, my um, you know, the people closest to me, I'm going to, uh, y'all want me to go to a, psych, a psychiatrist and counseling? They have to work as a team. That's what happened. I got, I got a team. And so they would communicate it. Like they were working together. Oh, wow. And so my behaviors in therapy um, were translated to my psychiatrist. And it was the first time I experienced that. And they both came, met with me. You have bipolar disorder. Um, this is what we're going to have to do. I, I went to therapy initially. I thought it was like twice a week. Mm-hmm. She was on call. I had uh, one incident where I couldn't contact her. And I knew of another lady who was a therapist. And I called her frantic because I was feeling these things for the medication, getting in my system because it takes some time. Um <laughs> Man, Prim, I was in Atlanta one time walking down South Cobb. I walked miles. I, that's how, like, manic I was. Mm-hmm. And then, like, flipping out. This, <laughs> it, it's just been a, a, a wild journey. That sounds, but, that's a lot of yeah. It sounds like there was an intervention, which mm-hmm. is a really kind of tough thing to go through, right? Because yeah. you feel like everybody's against you and yeah. you say, what am I doing? And, and if you're a perfectionist, that's yeah. your worst nightmare because you feel like it's a complete indictment of everything that you've done. So they saved my life though. They, they, they saved my life. All my, all my friends and they know who they are. Um, college roommate in New York calling me, uh, Samika Randall, my old Tennessee teammate, uh, Kyra Elsa, Tennessee folks, Tamika is checking in on me. Um, and me getting up and making sure I went to these appointments, um, taking the medication. I was in denial about that, but I saw how it started to help me. And I want to say this two years, right? This is my routine for two years. One day I went to therapy and I, it, it, it started, I was on the edge of my seat for a while. Mm-hmm. and rapid speech is one of those things of bipolar disorder. And I'm like, by the end, I'm, I'm like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking about other stuff and, and society and, and things. And my therapist says, 
he don't need to come here anymore. I'm like, what you talking about? You know, because a lot and of been two years. Yeah, a lot of people um, get addicted to therapy. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a common thing. And a lot of women, if their therapist is male, become attracted to their therapist. It's, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a true thing. So I've done the work. We we're talking about other stuff. I learned the skill set, the coping skill set to, to deal with um, the challenges I was having. Um, I learned what support was. Um, my speech, obviously, um, showed down the medication was working. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because my therapist, and she tricked me. One day she said, uh, who are your best friends? And um, she goes, so can I reach out to them, right? If there's an a, you know, emergency or whatever, mm-hmm. what's their phone numbers, you know? Because if I have a crisis or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I get, I gave her the phone numbers and she goes, all right, I just want you to sign this to make sure it's okay that I reach out to them. I didn't know she was doing checkups on me because she was trying to check how Shamika's mood, how she's, how oh, is she? interesting. Yeah, man, this lady like saved my, <laughs> saved, helped save my life too, man. I, I know I use that, but yes, I did a lot of the work. Yeah, but it's like I was like monitored, and it was great, great for but my. You found care. the right person. Yeah, at first I didn't think so because I was like, "How this lady? She does she identify with me? You know, as a woman of color." And I always tell kids, um, "You have to pick your therapist or in adults, pick your therapist like you want to pick like your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, whatever mm-hmm. partner." Yeah, and if it doesn't work, you know, you're dating somebody, oh, man, you're just not going to stay with them because you want to be with somebody. I mean, some people do, but overall, no. And you're on to the next one. And, you know, I mean, I had to go through five in a span of, like, eight months before I finally found mine. Right. So imagine, right, we had a, a, one of these colleges, right, no diversity, and you have athletes, predominantly minorities, mm-hmm. and them going into that counseling department, they don't identify with that. Diversity, diversity, diversity. That's the number one mm-hmm. thing when I'm at these schools. I'm like, I want to talk to them. So was your was your therapist, the, the woman that you're talking about, was she was she black? No, no, but she got me. Okay. And, and so so it, it's also the encouragement. Diversity is important, mm-hmm. but the whole identification, somebody might be able to help you and identify with you. She was queer. Don't have to. She was queer. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was the part. Okay. Yeah, because I'm like, it. I got to I gotta talk okay. about, talk about things and talk. And she, she, she told me that later, like she, like probably third visit. And she was oh, but like, you didn't know that beforehand. Well, right. You wouldn't because a, a therapist no, isn't going to divulge no. personal information. Right. Like and that. I'm sitting there. That's I'm like, funny. I'm like, all right. They said she was good. Okay. You know, where you from? Uh, Georgia and country. Uh-huh. Okay, where you go to school? Blah, 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 blah. Then we just started talking. She was like, listen. And she's like, okay. And started digging a little deeper. Helped me really understand my mother. You know. Um, Shanae's there. Oh, you need to change that. Hold on. We'll go until one. Let's grab. Uh, Shanae just walked up. <laughs> but I want to keep asking you some more questions. Okay, cool. Okay. Is it good? You're great. All right. Well, you know you're. No, no, no. no it's all about it's like, being. It's yeah, it, you know. Yeah. No, because like this is. Should we bring Chanae in or? Okay. Is she? Okay. Let me just tell. Yeah, her just go really tell quick. her that. I'll uh, text her. Yeah. It's a Gumake, right? I'll be messing up. Gumake, yeah. Yeah, Gumake. Oh man, with the other young lady for uh, well, what if they're Nigerian? I never asked that. Um, my Nigerian brothers and sisters, the names, I'd be so confused. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, you're talking about her sisters, or no? I'm 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 gonna have to ask them. I don't know if they're Nigerian or not, but like I think they, I think they, I think I think they are. Oh, no, yeah. okay. She grew yeah. up in Texas. Yeah, yeah, Houston. Yeah, yeah, Houston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So when when all of this stuff was going on right. regarding your mental health, what was was there any connection to basketball, mm-hmm. or was basketball completely separate? Um, it was, it was completely separate. It okay. was the one place where my mind was quiet mm-hmm. because I was focused on my task. Like that's, you know, you go get it done. You know, I have these teammates who support me. We're a unit, you know, but as soon as that ball stopped dribbling, that's when it would just hit me. You know, I was just very detached with my teammates, Muriel Page. She said, you're like civil. We had all these different personalities. <laughs> and it was it was true. I was like, dang, how do people uh, deal with me? And it damaged my, my some of my relations with my family. Um, I started to keep people distant from me. I didn't want people like too close, like my family, because I thought, oh, they're going to know my secret and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. What So what was the transition like for you leaving basketball when, when this thing that, that was your thing to control right and was your coping mechanism what happened when it wasn't oh, part of your life it was it was like something was like missing um you don't think about oh i have my degree um great in community and it's not like people were calling me for opportunities and i was just like what am i gonna do because the mental illness part and that crafty little sucker was on my shoulder telling me you're nothing oh my god it's over and I, it really got into my head, and it was just like, oh man, sleeping all the time. I always liken it to athletes, and we we laugh. If, if it's retired athletes, men and women, when we talk, it's like this. Yeah, you know how it is. Oh man, everybody's calling you. Hey, what you doing? And you're just like, oh man, yeah, um, yeah. I, I met with such and such. The no, your ass been sleeping on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, awesome. it, it's true because you have you have that moment where you're trying to uh, catch your breath. You would say, I was saying, and uh, yeah, it was like let me let me catch my breath, and then it just went took a whole different turn. And my mind, you know, after going through these things, these mental health concerns, my mind was like, let me try focus on getting healthy. And I used to do. I was before the incident, I was doing a lot of public speaking for, for wellness and mental health. And so I had all, I never forget, I had all these uh, appearances, like book. It was probably like 10 on my schedule. And that shit happened and it just all disappeared. And, and like people were really saying the C word and the articles, oh, this kid, what is she crazy? Because the media, you guys have to do a better job with, with people with mental health illness. Um, to ch- changing the you know narrative a little bit, mm-hmm. being a little more sensitive to understanding, and so I had people like major publications like just write very negative things about me. But you flip flop years down the road, and these people apologizing, and it, and I respect that because it takes a lot for a person to admit their wrongdoing. Yeah. Why do they apologize? Because a wife, a child, a close friend has been impacted by this also, mm-hmm. and they didn't understand how serious it was. Mm-hmm. Let, let's dive into that because that's a, that's a really, and, and fortunately the, the landscape surrounding mental health is, mm-hmm. is changing. So, you know, those people that are being a little bit more tactful and becoming more educated in mm-hmm. terms of all the issues that impact everybody. And honestly, mental health, I don't know if, do you think mental health people are receptive to the conversation 
of it? Or do you think there's still kind of a stigma, a stigma attached to it? Oh, man. Now, I think it's really changed. People I think are receptive. Is. Yes, I hope are. it is. But I, but I don't know because I, I'm aware that I might be operating in my own bubble because I'm super passionate about right. it. It's affected me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if people would be saying, you know, here we go again, mental health. And it's kind of seen as uh, like the, the yoga, trendy, hippie type yeah, you know, thing. My my wife made a comment. She's really uh, just the most sensitive person, but um, she's also a professor, right? So um, she was teaching this course in sports and a lot of the excuses for mental health. And she's very sensitive about it. Um, as a college athlete, she had her challenges. And she's like, I just, I, I just don't know, you know. Um, so I tell them, okay, just give me a note. And that you went to go see a counselor or therapist, and I, I can work with you through that. And she goes, All my years of doing this now, I've never had so many excuses. Mm-hmm. Athletic directors, you know, they have a conversation with Corey or what is that? I've been doing this for 30 something years. I've never had this many mental health mm-hmm. cases before. But the thing is, is that we've had a lot more celebrities speak about it, mm-hmm. share stories. The kids are stepping into their truth, I would say, understanding like, this is what it is. Of course, you have some and anything that take advantage of it. But I just think it's just uh, um, people are aware. People want to talk about it a little more. Now, again, I was talking earlier about the cultural thing. And you got to think about just being around sports, the culture. Now, you're dealing with men, right? Not a men thing. Women, statistically, are shown to be more open, proven to be more open to have yeah. these discussions. So now you're dealing with Man, I, I hate to point out football, but that's a culture. A lot, a lot of testosterone, right? A lot of testosterone, especially yeah, at the NFL level, especially. Yeah. Um, it's it's there's a lot of work to be done there, right? And so I see it, I see it in the collegiate. You know, um, mm-hmm. a lot of schools mm-hmm. I go to, the all the athletes are like required to come. I mean, they sign them in. They they have to be there, and a lot of times it's the football. Sometimes numbers, because there's so many guys, they don't have a good place. You do a, a, a separate meeting mm. for football team. But a lot of them, no. The, the bigger spaces, the football players show up, uh, you know, here and there, maybe a few. It's not something that's, like, mandatory. Then you'll have somebody that stops and, uh, you know, the coach can run for governor. They have their own rules, you know, with their guys. And it's a gentleman uh, What's Will's last name? He was a football player at the University of Michigan. Mm. And I got a lot of insight from him mm. uh, uh, about the culture. So, you know, it's just great when you have, like, um, coaches who are positive, like Nick Saban. You know, he, he understands the importance of mental health and, you know, me being good able to hear. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I was like, whoa. I, yeah. I, always, I always use him. And, um, you know, his staff is like, he really... Um, believes in this and support. So when I went to Alabama, the guys, you know, they showed up and, you know, it's just really a, a good, a good feeling. You start to see this, see this change, you know, and it's not because it's just mandatory. And even when it's mandatory, they don't go <laughs> football. Really? Oh yeah. That's, that's like the toughest. And, you know, but now I see in the last year, I would say the football plays when they do come, they'll be waiting on the side and be like that. I get it. You know, and to see that is helping because I always follow up. And I'll be like, hey, such and such, you know, came. Um, how's he doing? Or how is she doing with the female athletes? And I'll be like, oh, yeah, he's doing better. But because of the power of social media, and this is why I have to stay locked in sometimes, especially after school visits, because it may be, I'll say, 10 questions asked mm-hmm. and people sharing their journey. 
30. After. Yep. The, yep. This is when, because they, they want that safe space. Do you yeah. mind if we hop They'll on send the you call? an email. They'll send you a social yeah. media. Because no one wants to get up in front of a crowd, especially their coaches or whoever, mm-hmm. and their peers, and ask something. But coaches, space. let's talk about these coaches, though. Oh my God! I, I what do you want to What do you want to mention about that? Some of them are just pure assholes and not understanding that they go. They set up this system, right? Recruiting, right? Where you go and you talk to this. Yeah, you're gonna be great. You're awesome. Come to my school. And like a lot of times, head coaches are really there, hands on. You bring the kid to school. All right, the kid is not performing, whatever. But you throw them on the Second coach, you're not having that direct dialogue with them. The kid is losing confidence, we're broken. Um, some coaches just don't believe in like mental health. I've, I've had coaches say, "Man, that kid's just an asshole. I don't have time for this or whatever." I said, "Are you are are you a professional counselor, therapist, or anything?" I always ask because some have degrees. Uh, no, why not assist this kid? You know, just like you came to the house and you told him, "Hey, I care about you. I love you. I know you're going through these challenges of not playing injuries or whatever." Please talk to somebody. Talk to somebody that's qualified. You won't believe how many times they uh, drop the ball. And this is not just oh, me. Oh, I believe it because okay. I've I've seen it mm-hmm. and I've partially experienced it. it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't – There's there can't be an athlete out there that hasn't experienced mm-hmm. a coach dropping the ball in terms of – and it doesn't have to – mental health, it falls on a spectrum. Right? You don't right. have to be dealing with some sort of mental illness, illness. for the coach to drop a ball. Right. Mm-hmm. It's about – them not worrying about you as a person mm-hmm. and not objectifying somebody just because they're an athlete. But mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask because I know that in, while we're talking about coaches, mm-hmm. when you came out and started being a little bit more public about your struggles, mm-hmm. or at least within the league, right. I know that there wasn't a, a necessarily a warm reception uh, with your no, team no. and people were saying, dropping the, oh, she's crazy type mm-hmm. thing. So what was that like, having to deal with that? It was hard, you know, um, because, you know, people are talking about you. You become a little self-conscious. It forced me to become even more internal or whatever. Um, Just very isolating. But the thing that that helped me get through that was um, the word isolated. So, um, you know, operating sort of by myself, keeping to myself, but it will always be that teammate or, or, or somebody from the other team that will try to isolate me after a game. Hey, you going to eat? Or after the team bus, uh, hey, you, you know, you want to grab a bite? <laughs> and people start sharing their stories. So I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I was in Atlanta and, you know, Atlanta's like the athlete mecca now. Everybody lives yeah. there. And I'll be in the gym working out. And it was like, they're like, that's such and such that plays for this team, male athlete. And be like, yo, I saw your story. I appreciate that. You know, I, I lost my mom. I'm dealing with this. And, you know, I know, keep doing what you're doing. And that started to become like a part of my, my journey. And these people didn't realize how much they were helping me. Because, you know, people were judging me. I still get from athletes you know, this summer. Um, I, I spoke to all the teams in the WNBA. And people like, why do you want to be attached with your mental health? Hmm. And I said, man, when something impacts you, your life, it, it, it totally turned things around for me. And to see my dad struggling to this day, um, living with schizophrenic disorder, I'm just passionate about it. And it's not nothing that's rehearsed. Um, I'm not talking to him with a foot, you know. 
hey, such and such, 18%. No, it's that real. We're going to really talk. Yeah. You know, if you say something, we're going to expound upon that. It's, it's the exchange that we have to have. To have. So what, what's the message that you really want to send out there to, oh, to everybody who is watching and listening? And, and it's the gamut of from young athletes to former athletes to coaches and parents. Oh, but- the, the, the pressure. I think the number one thing, like, yeah, we love sports or whatever, but it's about taking care of that, that total person. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we constantly hear it uh, spiritually, emotionally. Well, you know, athletes, we're thinking, like, physically most of the time to, to, to be the best. And it's just like, oh, self-love at the end of the day. Just wanting to be the best you and just checking all those boxes of what you encompass. You know what I'm saying? I got to make sure spiritually that I'm in the right place. So that's why I wake up every morning. I meditate. That's, that's for me. Um, I'm very thankful. Uh, emotionally. What am I, what am I feeling? Right. Being honest, man, I feel like shit today. Like what's, what's off? Like, mm-hmm. okay, I don't need to be around a lot of people today. You know, I just need to go hiking. I need to go w- walking, but we get distracted when we're in it. Oh, your friends are like, Hey, you have to practice, you know, let's go do this and that. People have families um, pulling on them. People have girlfriends, babies and stuff. So we can kind of lose ourselves, but just always, like you told me earlier, you, I think you say, hey, make sure with the, with the baby coming, make sure that you guys take care. You did say that, right? Yeah, okay. I did. So, yeah. Right, you did. I don't you did. know. <laughs> it's either you or Susie. It was either you or Susie because I was with her yesterday, but it's just never lose sight of, of who you are mm. and do the work. I always tell these young people, like, you got, you're not expensive, therapy is. I mean, yeah, insurance, insurance covers it, but the good, good therapist, um, I mean, psychiatrists sometimes yeah. don't even take the, the insurance. Oh, no, yeah. 350? Yeah. No, like, let's be real. Some people actually go up to the 450. Man. Those are the good people, Right, those are the people that you, you want to see. And But in college, you get this for free, right? Yeah. So learn the skill set now of how to deal, deal with things. And unfortunately, we live in a culture. In a, a kids, Smith University, Smith College, all-girls school in Massachusetts, New York Times article, and you gotta read this. Taught a course on failure. Ooh, yeah, it was po- nice. it's powerful. And you know, they're the activists of the future, yeah. Smith College. And because we don't understand, like these kids don't understand failure. Yeah. It, it don't, and we're all gonna fall. I was here. I'm like, bam, flat on my face. Nobody don't want to deal with me, but I had resilient women in my life. My grandmother, Coach Summit. So I think of Jay-Z. I'm from New York, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, lyric in a song. Every time I hit the ground, I bounce up like round ball. Mm-hmm. And that's when I hit it. All right, I'm, I'm going to come back. I, I'm going to do the work. And so I've just been consistently over the last couple of years like this, like this. And it feels, it feels good. It's balanced in my life. You feel, you, I can see it in your eyes. Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't know you when you were going through all that stuff, mm-hmm. But I look in your eyes and I just see just heal, <laughs> just happiness and healed. I and mean, that doesn't mean that you don't go through your right, stuff. Right. That doesn't mean that I don't go through my right. stuff. But you have the tools now to pull you out of those things. And you have the people around you. Support. We all, we all need that. And I remember you, like you said, when you hit me up and you shared, you know, I was like, oh, man, this is just awesome. Because that's how we change the conversation. It's open, open and, and honest. And mm-hmm. We never like I, when I had to look too because I've never met. We never met in person. Yeah, we talked, yeah. and I did have your number. 
<laughs> but the iCloud messed up. Yeah. And so I've lost so many people's numbers inside my That's, phone. I wouldn't expect you to keep my number because no, you get hit up oh, all no, the time to do I stuff. Did, but no, I kept it because I remember you sharing. That's big. You you don't know who I was. And you was like, yeah, I had my struggles. I was just, so I, I appreciated that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you for coming on. And, and I, I literally could sit here for five more hours and, and talk with you but you have the next i do i do (laughs) you know like yeah i enjoy watching the the sisters the sisters play at stanford and uh, i visited with them this year so it's good you know next generation we gotta support them (laughs) that's right that's what it's all about Uh well i hope that we can you can come on again Mm -hmm. and we can talk about the transition becoming becoming a mother because oh, you're definitely. about to become a mother. Oh, man. And I'm so excited. You guys are in for it. You're in for such a good ride. But don't you're, forget. You're scaring me. <laughs> but the first three months are just, just know that just everybody that. has been through it. The yeah. first three months are, you know, are fun and amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a wild ride. I'm, I'm holding, I'm holding strong. Uh, I got this. I'm so excited. This you is like the, the new chapter. You know, I had my cousin, like I told you, for yeah. six months. And um, I just never, like. I didn't birth her, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I got her. She was uh, six months, and she's used to seeing different things. But that baby fell like so in love. She was like, "Mama," and I would just kiss all over. And then I just said, "Like my heart is big." I'm Auntie Meek to everybody. I always have everybody's kids. I'm really good with kids, and so I'm excited to have our own. You know, this is somebody that we get to nurture and grow. And then with the knowledge I have just about life, my, my journey, I can, you know, You're give ready. to this little person. All right. You're so, you're ready. Oh, thank I'm you. I'm excited for thank you. you. <laughs> thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> the next chapter with Prims Rupapat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.